0: Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues I'm your host Stephen and this week we will be looking at issue number 507 August the 13th 1994, £1.40 weekly They've added weekly to the cover, don't know why um, Weekly was never there before, sure, that's what they do I've got no clue where this year is going I can't believe it's um, August 13th for this issue uh, I honestly can't believe, 8 months into 2021, what is going on? So this week, Guns N' Roses released a new single called Absurd. I heard a live version of it, uh, it was posted up I think on their Twitter page, and it may be one of the worst pieces of music I've ever heard in my life. I just, it, it was bad, it was, it was Chinese democracy bad, maybe even worse. But, I just went and listened to the studio version, which has been released, uh, I think that was out on the like, 5th of August or something. And the studio version is so much better than the live version. The live version—it just sounded horrific. Uh, I mean, Axl Rose sounded like a I, I The first time I saw the live video, I actually thought it was a Shreds video. I don't know if anyone—I'm sure some of you are aware of the Shreds videos, where someone just rips like the piss out of the band by um, recording some terrible music and playing it over, you know the band playing it so it makes it look like they can't play the instruments. I genuinely thought this was a Shreds video when I first saw it, it was that bad. But like I said, the studio version actually isn't horrendous, it's not terrible. I think it would take quite a few listens to maybe get into and it's probably a song that within the context of an album wouldn't be so bad but as it's on it's own, the live version just forget that, listen to the studio version if you can. Uh, I think I've probably talked quite a bit now about the new Guns N' Roses single. I'm sure a lot of people don't give a crap about that. Why are Guns N' Roses making new songs in 2021? Uh, you know, I'm all about I went I went to see like I'm a. am you know, I went to see Guns N' Roses when they played at um, Wembley, no, not Wembley, uh, the Olympic Stadium a few years back. I had chances to see Guns N' Roses in the past, but it was always Guns and um, Axl Rose and his karaoke band Buckethead and whoever else was playing. It wasn't the original lineup, but it was Slash and Duff and Axl. And for me, that's the sort of, you know, the the three sort of core members that I think are maybe most important. Izzy Straddin's is obviously a great guitarist. You know, there's arguments about who the best drummer in Guns N' Roses were. For me, I don't really care about that stuff. Duff, Axl, Slash—they were the three that mattered to me. And they were brilliant live. They were absolutely incredible. I, I loved every second of it. And Axel Rose's voice wasn't horrific because I'd seen videos of them live and I was really scared that he was going to sound terrible. But he sounded really good. So that was really good. But yeah, I'm not sure why they're releasing the new music. Uh, at this point, they just need to just be a legacy band, tour every now and then, play the old stuff. I guess bands want to write new stuff to keep keep things fresh for them. I get that, but maybe just write it and don't release it because at this point all they're doing is i mean their legacy is you know pretty sullied from the chinese democracy and most of the members being pieces of shit so sullying their legacy they've kind of done that themselves really they you know haven't done the best job at keeping the name but you know what can you do i'm a hypocrite i paid money to go see them even though they're scumbags what can you do so this week, I had a lovely message from a guy named Mark. Um, actually, it wasn't this week. It was about a week or two ago. And Mike writes, Just wanted to say that I love the podcast. It takes me back to when I was younger, growing up in a small village in Manchester, and my only escapism was Kerrang!, that and the Friday Rock Show. It brings back memories. I listened to your podcast religiously and just wanted to get in touch. What a lovely message to get. I really um, do appreciate uh, hearing from people You know how, about how much they enjoy this. Um, I think, like I've said many times before, me doing this was um, something that I started during the, the lockdown um, around Christmas time, New Year. It was just something to sort of keep my mind active. I had all these Kerrang! magazines. I thought I'd do something good with them. Um, the fact that anyone listens to this podcast on a weekly basis and really enjoys it, I, I love that. I, I'm really, really happy about that. I do it because I enjoy it. If other people enjoy it too, it's absolutely brilliant. I, you know, I'm really, really grateful and really happy about that. So this week's, um, actually before we get to that, if you would like to get in touch with us here at Kerrangback Issues, you can get us through Instagram at Kerrang back Issues. We have a Twitter page, Kerrangpod, and we also have an email address, kerrangbackissues at gmail.com. Oh, just one thing before we start, there are no singles this week um, for anyone that was excited about the singles. It's not many people usually are. <laughs> it's usually, the single reviews are usually quite odd. Every now and then they get a reviewer that doesn't actually really talk about the music so much and just goes off on like an abstract, like weird rant about something that they probably don't like about a band. They're usually quite odd. Anyway, no singles this week. Cover stars for this week, however, Chris Cornell and Soundgarden. We dig up graves. Have Chris Cornell and Soundgarden gone insane? Also, Sepultura to record next LP in Jungle. Slayer. Full scam on new album. Machine Head. They eat Pantera for breakfast, plus Therapy, Metallica, Gilby Clark, Iron Maiden, ACDC 8-page pullout, and Skin, Wallop, Wolverhampton. Before we go into news, just going to do the cover quiz. Cover stars, Soundgarden's new hit single is called Black Hole Sun. Here are five astronomical metal teasers. Question one, who bunked to the moon in 1984? 2. Which legendary heavy rockers went space trucking in 1972? 3. Which trio came out of the silent planet in 1988? 4. Which hot new US combo released a 1993 album titled Venus Luxure Number One Baby? And which 5. Which kissed man was known as Starchild? Answers to these questions at the end of this episode of the pod. So starting now um, with Mayhem, the hottest news in metal first, And Slayer Show No Mercy Slayer are this week putting the finishing touches to their long-awaited sixth studio album as they kick off a series of warm-up dates in Texas and Arizona. Since Kerrang's exclusive studio report, K499, the band have mixed new LP Divine Intervention twice and altered various working titles before confirming the ten tracks set for inclusion. Divine Intervention is the first Slayer album to feature the tub-thumping talents of ex-forbidden drummer Paul Bustaf who replaced the long-standing Dave Lombardo in mid-1992. What's more, the album has brought an end to the sparring between guitar hooligans Jeff Hanneman and Kerry King. This little-publicized internal feuding has affected the band for a number of years, but a renewed sense of cooperation between King and Hanneman has seen the Slayer six-string attack return to the levels of intensity captured on their landmark album. 1986's Reign in Blood. And on the subject of Slayer, Legal Scrap halts Slayer and Crows LPs. The release of new albums from Slayer Black Crows, Danzig, Dehypnotics and Deconstruction may all be affected by a dispute between American Recordings and Phonogram. The third Black Crows LP originally due this month has now been put back to November while the two record companies who have operated for many years as a joint venture fresh out legal problems. American Recordings have taken out a writ against Phonogram in the States, stating that the alliance is over. Phonogram UK responded by taking out an injunction to stop American approaching any other record company to distribute their product. The latter dispute will be contested at the High Court in London on August the 17th. At the end of the hearing, whatever the outcome, a more definite release schedule is likely to be announced. Stop Press Die Krupps, the German techno metalers, have been confirmed as support to Paradise Lost on their forthcoming UK tour. Machine Head's debut album Burn My Eyes is available at selected stores with a no-risk guarantee where buyers can exchange it if not fully delighted. The band will definitely tour the UK this year. Whitesnake have released their greatest hits package in America. It ended the US album charts last week at number 161. The Almighty will support Pantera in Europe but not in Britain. UK support for Anselmo & Co. will be revealed next week. Therapy, the Irish punk metal Herberts have started preparing material for their next album. We're allegedly enjoying a four and a half week break before the Reading Festival at the moment, explains bass monster Michael McKeegan. Andy Cairns is in Dublin. He's got a little 4-track machine with him and he's already got loads of stuff written. So I'm going to go down there to stick my horrible bass all over it. Actually, it'll be nice to see each other away from the band because Andy and I are really close. We'll be indulging in much wine, women and song, I can tell you. Any idea when you're going to start recording the damn thing? We should get started in January, he replies. Mind you, Trouble Gun has just gone into the top 20 in Germany, so it's not as if it's dead yet. Sepultura have revealed details of their next album exclusively to Kerrang! Kerrang! The follow-up to last year's phenomenal Chaos AD package will be recorded in a small jungle town in the heart of northeastern Brazil. Sept frontman Max Cavalera explains that following some early experimentation with tribal drums and atmospheres, it was the Chaos AD track, uh, that truly captured the imaginations of the band and fans alike. Now the Brazil nuts want to take it a step further. It's a trip to go into rainforest country, grinned Max. It's a different language, even to Portuguese, and it gets you thinking about a lot of stuff. The plans for the new album are really wild right now we're gonna move for four months to northern brazil just to write songs we haven't found a town yet but we're looking to find a really small village where we can just get a house together sit down and write we feel that we've done pretty much everything outside brazil recording in england for klcd was great but now it's time to get back to brazil and really see what we can take from out of there what inspiration and vibe there is to be found remarkably it was looking at the life of reggae legend bob marley that got the band thinking along such revolutionary lines Marley's a really big influence right now, says Max. He left Jamaica and then he went back there to make more albums because he couldn't do it outside Jamaica, which is strange. Manic Street preachers have strongly denied rumors that guitarist Richie James is about to leave the band following his recent hospitalization. Said to be suffering from nervous exhaustion, James has been admitted to a private clinic in London. The three remaining Mannix were subsequently forced to play a gig without him at the Glasgow Tea in the Park Festival on July 30th, though bassist Nicky Wyatt assured the crowd during their set, We haven't turned into one of these power trios like The Fucking Jam or anyone like that. A spokesperson from the Mannix PR company Hall or Nothing set the record straight this week. Nobody's leaving the band. Richie's just out of action for a few weeks. We're just hoping he'll be okay for the Reading Festival. Him leaving the band has never been an issue. People have been putting two and two together and coming up with five. James's bouts of heavy drinking and self-mutilation have been well documented. The most notorious incident was when he carved four reel onto his forearm during an interview said to be irritating him. In Kerrang472, he explained, I'm not a violent person at all. When I felt like clubbing this particular journalist to death, I just directed it at myself. No, I don't regret it. I don't regret anything. Tour news now and the Wild Hearts, Skin, Magnum and Tiger Tales have all been confirmed to take part in a five-day free rock festival taking place in the West Midlands. The bands will headline on separate nights and make up a massive metal bill featuring more than 30 bands. Soundgarden returned to the UK for a full bout of live dates in September. So far, only two shows have been announced but Mayhem can reveal that more will definitely be forthcoming. The two confirmed dates are Liverpool Royal Court, September 14th, Newport Centre, 15th. Watch this space for more news. Soundgarden Garden are currently on tour in Canada, having already played extensively across the United States. Madball, the New York hardcore outfit with a ridiculously strong pedigree, make their UK debut with Mod at London Marquee on August 10th. The date ties in with the release of the band's debut album, Set It Off, which received a weighty 4Ks in last week's Kerrang! Body Count, Ice-T's motherfucking metal mob have lined up a full UK tour. They promote new album Born Dead, released through Virgin on September the 5th, with dates at Newcastle Mayfair, September 27th, Town & Country, 28th, Manchester Academy, 29th, Wolverhampton Civic Hall, 30th, Sheffield Octagon, October 1st, Glasgow Barrowland, 2nd, London Brexit Academy, 3rd, and Nottingham Rock City, 26th. Neurosis play a one-off date at London Halsden Mean Fiddler, August 17th. Record releases, and Biohazard release a new single through Warner Brothers this week. Entitled How It Is, it is the second single to be lifted from the New York hardcore mob's major label debut Stay of the World Address. How It Is will be available on CD, cassette, limited edition CD housed in a red case, and limited edition red vinyl 10-inch. All formats will feature remixes by DJ Lethal from House of Pain. Heart are set to record a series of live dates in Seattle next week for a forthcoming live acoustic album. Slated for release through Capitol early next year, the LP will be produced by former Led Zeppelin bassist John Paul Jones and is set to feature a new song, Cherry Blossom Road. Ash, the Irish pop metal mob, released a new single, Petrol, for Infectious Records on August the 12th. And Burzum, the cult one-man black metal outfit of convicted killer Count Grishnak, have their latest album, Haviz Lyset Taos, released on Gatefold Marble Vinyl this week. There are 500 copies available in the UK and the record can be obtained by mail order for £9 inclusive from Misanthropy Records at P.O. Box 3641, London, E15, 3HP, Checks payable to Misanthropy. I looked up this record on Discogs and it's currently going for £1,300. Coast to coast now, the hottest US news as it happens. And this week, Lisa Johnson is on the trail of Lollapalooza. When invited to spend a week photographing the Smashing Pumpkins on the Lollapalooza 94 tour, our LA girl jumped to the chance. Soon, her daily log of the tour became a novella of Dickensian proportions. On one Kerrang size page, encapsulated here for your reading pleasure, are some of the printable highlights of her adventures. Las Vegas, Lollapalooza 94 kicked off in the Sin City, Las Vegas, Nevada. Backstage, Smashing Pumpkins' Billy Corgan was hosting an edition of MTV's 120 Minutes. During this alternative video show, Corgan interviewed the various artists on the tour, including Faith band The Boredoms and Godfather of Funk, George Clinton. Also hanging out was Zack Della Rocha, without the other Della Rockers, in Rage Against the Machine, and Metallica's Kurt Hammett, on a short break from his band's current summer tour, sporting some fancy new dreadlocks. And also festival founder Perry Farrell, with his girlfriend Kim Leung and her son. L7's Donita Sparks looked fetching in her new sombrero, a $2 Vegas thrift store find, and L7 had busied themselves the previous night in Las Vegas by checking out some of the city's finer offerings in comedic entertainment. Phyllis Diller and Dom Deleuwe, Donita highly recommends the latter. Denver The day off would nearly have been a bust if not for the fortune of meeting some nutty guy named Digby or something like that who turned out to be the singer from Foreskin 500. Rescuing us from some cruddy club where four men in dresses were playing, one of the guys was supposed to have been from Fluid, our new best friend Digby escorted our gang which now included San Diego bands Inch and Rust who are touring with Gumble on a pre-palooza plane in every town the night before the big show to a crazy little bar called the Lion's Hair. As we arrived, local band Babahead were nearly uh, at the end of their set and it was a wild set because the lead singer was positively torturing his guitar for a symphony of feedback. Then, he burst out the door of the front of the club and smashed his guitar to bits on the sidewalk as the band carried on playing. To top it all, his buxom blonde girlfriend then tackled him and the pair started furiously making out against the building. We had so much fun we stayed till they kicked us out. At the show the next day, I heard that the singer from The Verve passed out on stage from heatstroke, which is sad because the next day in Kansas City, the drummer was arrested for throwing chairs out of his hotel window with a friend. Hard luck. Kansas City. While the Verve drummer was getting booked, the rest of the 300 plus people on the Lollapalooza tour had a day off. As the 23 tour buses rolled into town, Kansas City became a playground for the wicked. Unfortunately, it was a Sunday and there ain't too much to do for the wicked on a Sunday. Thank god we found Stanford's 2 for the price of 1 drinks and ladies night. Slowly but surely, almost everybody ended up there for lack of better thing or anything else to do. It was the next best thing to a karaoke bar. Nick Cave looked no more out of place in this cheesy sports bar than did L7's Dee Placus and Jennifer Finch. Eventually Pumpkin's bassist Darcy found us too and the party raved on into the wee hours. At the Kansas show, Darcy decided it was time for a change with a Chicago friend there who just happens to cut hair. Darcy emerged from the band's dressing room with a short bob. The group's lighting designer carries a large chunk of locket in his breast pocket. Band drummer Jimmy Chamberlain also got the same haircut. Amazingly, a sandal-clad young lad managed to circumvent security at jump on stage at a break during the Pumpkin set. As he was dragged away, singer Corgin was quick to reply, he could have stayed if we'd uh, been <laughs> wearing regular shoes. Minneapolis, this was the next day and it rocked, but they only had a porta potty. Chicago, at almost any point on tour the Beastie Boys can usually be found shooting the hoops in the backstage area. Chicago was no different. The Breeders' Kelly Deal usually has candy, and did you know the Breeders have an obsession for Taco Bell? Raging into machine Tom Morello, originally from the Chicago area, himself was home for the weekend and bought his mum out for a day at Lollapalooza. A surprise sold-out world amphitheater crowd was thrilled when Morello joined the Pumpkins on stage for Silver Fuck, a magic rock moment preserved forever in the eyes of all those who witnessed it. Next week, Don K is in New York. We now continue with the metallica us news report exclusive it's the hottest and heaviest tour currently tearing up the road in america yeah it's metallica's "Shit hits the sheds extravaganza and you can read all about it in the big k's weekly red hot road reports this week hetfield's heroes bulldoze through their hometown of san francisco sylphie simmons checks the rubble for survivors july 22nd Back home in San Francisco after showing Seattle what metal is all about, the Bay Area boys play the pretty enormous Shoreline Amphitheater. On the same night, Stone Temple Pilots, currently at number 4 on the Billboard US Hot 100 album chart, play a smaller theater down the road. Metallica show is sold out. What did you expect? A Motley Crue situation? Metallica played their best Bay Area performance in over 5 years according to the San Francisco Examiner. Concentrating on stuff from their classic first two albums, Killemore and Ride the Lightning, they played much more like hardcore punks than stadium rockers, said the Examiner's rock critic. Fresh dancing broke out on the lawn, the report goes, and pyros killed off anyone still standing. Freed from the pressure to perfect and sell new material, the Examiner concludes the quartet played harder, tighter and more enthusiastically. The bloke from San Francisco's other leading paper, The Chronicle, put a different slant on it, bemoaning the concentration on old material. If there was a real problem with the show, it was the sense that it was so tight and rehearsed by now that it has lost its spontaneity. New material would be a good idea. As for the lawn dancers, they were rowdy. The general vibe was high testosterone, low IQ. The audience booed opening that Candlebox, whose eponymous debut album, released via Madonna's Maverick label, has now sold a million units stateside. Considering the pop teen idols of American alternative rock, Candlebox had been described by one noted rock photographer as the trickster of grunge. San Francisco newspaper reviewers dubbed them dreary, awkward and sloppy. Similarly, the glorious suicidal tendencies were merely tolerated by the Metallica faithful. The original support act for this leg of the tour were Alison in Chains, who quit due to much publicised health problems. Alison in Chains are gone, but apparently not forgotten. At recent gigs, Metallica have been performing their own little tribute to the troubled Seattle stars. In the middle of the set, they announce a new tune that Jason has just written. They then launch into an Alice in Chains riff while miming all manner of drug abuse. July 23rd to the 28th Metallica rampage through the Californian state capital of Sacramento, home of management stablemates Tesla, and out via two more Californian cities to the desert states of Arizona and Utah. The hottest heavy metal tour of the year leaves behind it a trail of rave press reviews. The Boston Phoenix pays the tribute to the Men of Steel. Metallica roar full throttle onto the stage and pound the piss out of everything that frustrates, or fucks up, or kills the human spirit or flesh, until the sheer act of performing somehow makes it all a little better. Illumination becomes celebration at a howling decibel level. The Phoenix ranted on about heads down determination, froth mouthed pace, and enough volume to make the bridge of your nose rattle when Lars Ulrich stomps his twin kick drums. You get the picture. This reviewer also singled out frontman James Hetfield for special praise, acclaiming the mustachioed riffmeister one of rock's most intriguing rhythm guitarists. Yep, the old phoenix couldn't get enough of James's quick changes in tempo, lightning stops and heavy on the downstroke picking, and let's face it, who can? The Boston Globe was equally impressed by the Metalli show in Mansfield, Maryland, which drew a staggering 19,900 punters. The Globe dubbed Metallica, America's preeminent populist smartest heavy metal band and said of the gig, no new product to promote, just good old ferocious headbanging, Metallica out on the road again, playing the same old, same old. Want a new song, Hetfield jokes in Mansfield, so do we. Hetfield likes a laugh between numbers. In Mansfield, as the second song Master of Puppets finishes, he rolls thank you and good night. He also enjoys a chuckle at the expense of the band's poorest album and justice for all. Did you like it, he asked the Mansfield Metalli fans. Don't fucking lie to me, you don't have to hear it again. Meanwhile, support act Danzig have taken a beating for their obvious lack of humour. The Boston Globe rubbish Danzig as theatrical bluster and bravado running on uh, over ambition. Summing up for Globe Blasted, Danzig's music boasts a surfeit of art metal cliches, references to Poe, but a reliance on standard riffing. Ouch which simply goes to prove that just because you wear all black, it doesn't make you the best heavy metal band in the world. Next week, the Metallica tour bludgeons its way across America towards the death metal state of Florida. Stay tuned for more Metallica mayhem. (laughs) you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up. Concerts now, and the first concert reviewed this week is Skin and Baby Stafford live at the Wolfram Hall Wolverhampton on Monday, August the 1st. This review is by Steve Beebe, and this gets a high voltage out of five, four out of five. There are some encouraging pointers during Baby Stafford's set. Although the band cannot be looked on as heavyweight contenders in songwriting, their enthusiasm and willingness to make an impression pays large dividends. Throughout this tour with Skin, Baby Stafford are playing unfamiliar tunes to relatively large audiences and are getting away with it. Stafford himself, who's graduated from Gun along with drummer Scott Shields, admits that he can't stand the band's name and he's quite right to object. It's this kind of name that brings to mind a low quality female cabaret singer, not awfully rock and roll. The band themselves, completed by Stafford's fellow guitarist Buddy Rennie and bassist Paul Rodham, take every opportunity to be as rock and roll as possible. Songs like their single Paper Lovemaker combine Gunn's gutsy integrity with a looser, stonesy feel that the band ought to take advantage of in their production. Backstage, Skin exchanged some worried looks as Stafford appears to trash his guitar amp, but all is well when Britain's most reliable new band take the stage to their usual rapturous welcome. Two years ago, the success of a band like Skin would have seemed impossible. Now it is a vivid reality, and a source of encouragement for other bands who don't wish to simply mimic this week's media darlings. Skin always devoid of hype are very real indeed. The other great thing about Skin that has now become apparent is they don't play bad gigs or even in different ones. Every night, they perform with power, precision and gusto to the same unerringly high standard. If anything has changed, it's the band's increasing uh, stage presence and in particular Neville McDonald's authority as a frontman. There have never been doubts concerning the man's immense voice, but it's only of late that MacDonald has matured into a witty all-round entertainer. As a result, House of Love and Money are fuel injected and turbocharged, the band looking more cohesive than ever. They perform two new songs, a rocker called Ride the Blue Wave and the sublime I Feel for You, a more laid-back number that starts off like classic Whitesnake and culminates in some soul-drenched melodies. Take Me Down to the River isn't a new song but was inexplicably omitted from the band's debut album. As ever, it's magnificent, the fists of the crowd pumping in time to its crashing chords and rousing chorus. They'll surely include it on their second album. Mike Gray is in superb spirits, moving with the stealth of a ninja and playing neat, unfussy solos. Grey is undoubtedly at his best when combining with MacDonald to produce the pounding riffs that constitute revolution and take me down. Tonight, Look But Don't Touch is sung largely by the crowd, further proof of how fast skin have risen in so short a time. For a band who've been in the public eye for less than a year, skin have every reason to be as content as cats in a creamery. This next review is for Headswim and Rub Ultra, live at the Riverside, Newcastle on Sunday, July 21st. Reviewed by Liam Shiles, this gets high voltage out of five, four out of five. Their genre-hopping style, coupled with Will and Sarah's double-barreled vocal blitz, will no doubt earn Rub Ultra references to Sensor, but their live sound is much less cluttered than that generated by Halfham Al-Sayed's six-man and one-woman army. Rub Ultra have an amusing obsession with consumer products, ranging from multi-surface cleaning solutions, health horror, to the pieces of plastic that we all fish for in cereal boxes, free toy. And while the deepest feelings are stirred by their more gloriously convoluted songs, Windick connects as empathetically as a skinhead's boot. Headswim's customary show opener, Violent, allows Thunder faced Dan Denning to attack his guitar, sending out huge tidal waves of unstoppable energy, which almost, but not quite, overpowers Nick Watts' spicy dollops of keyboards. The song develops into an extended Latin jam in which the band dig a groove deeper than anything this side of the next Red Hot Chili Peppers album, while Watts belts out an unbelievable conga solo on his keyboard's mini drum pad. Down is slower and more jagged. It spits out its fire like a broken machine gun, but despite the fact that it's a new song, it induces a leaping mania in Headswim's audience, who looked like a clothes show item on grunge fashion. Gone To Pot is a bit of a non-entity, but the wall of sound that is proud of raises it instantly before another fresh number. Tried, disappointed, makes a whole song out of violence, a main keyboard phrase, and introduces a quirkier, poppier element to Headswim's already impressive repertoire. Chains and nails sounds undeniably like Soundgarden, but the majestic head sounds like nothing else on earth, providing proof that Headswim are capable of driving a wedge of originality into increasingly claustrophobic market. Rarely played encore, one red eye, again raises the audience to fever pitch. In fact, never in the field of human endeavour has such a modestly-sized crowd gone so mental. Head to him, deserve it. The album will be massive. This next review is for the Arvika Festival in Arvika, Sweden, on Saturday, July the 23rd. Reviewed by Claire Douse, this gets a high voltage out of five. A four out of five. For a midsummer Saturday with a rock festival taking over the town, the centre of Arvika is deathly silent. The entire population of Sweden seems to be at the Arvika festival a mile out of town. The lesser-known Euro festival circuit throws up some strange lineups. Included on today's bill are a local level 42 sounder-like combo, up against an all-girl Euro pop four-piece, had in belts masquerading as mini skirts, who attract one of the largest main stage crowds of the day as the festival's male punters crane their necks to see up them. But looking at the t-shirts and the proliferation of haystack hair, it's the heavier end of the bill that's the main draw. Tool haven't been having a happy time. Proposed single sober seems to have been shelved and the recent UK shows weren't exactly inspirational. But, in the relaxed heat of this afternoon, Tool let rip with a vengeance. Singer Maynard James Keenan, never the most comfortable of live performers, grabs the shell-shocked Swedes by the throat as he spews out his whole soul, helped by phenomenally tight backups, um, particularly from bassist Paul d’Armois, Prison Sex stands out, but interestingly, other than that, it's tracks from 1992's Opiate mini-album, which really crush. Part of me leaves everyone limp and drained. Well known for their unwillingness to headline even in their home country, entombed roaring to action just around midnight to virtual hysteria. Having easily mastered the art of death metal with tunes where almost all others have failed, they hurl themselves into latest single out of hand, and from then, there's a serious danger of the normally placid Swedish punters rioting. Rumbling into Wolverine Blues bassist Lars Rosenberg's Ramses fought on the monitor, Steve Harris style, urging the stage divers as close as they can get. Vocalist LG Petrov grins and incites them further in Swedish, which contrasts oddly when Kiss cover God of Thunder, with all its full-on Americanisms, is performed at full throttle. Entombed Success on Euro MTV, coupled with the strength of both new and old material, left-hand path is killer tonight, guarantees that they're about to become huge. Take cover if you can't stand the pace. It's gone 2am. It's still not dark, and the place is still packed, as pitch shifter make a low-key entrance. The calm doesn't last. Launching into a vicious deconstruction which almost causes a fight between vocalist J.S. Claydon and his bass player brother when the bass lead is accidentally wrenched out, Pitchshifter perform on a volcano of suppressed violence. Ephemeral, a grinding gravid rage, a hate-filled triad, all the band's heaviest and most provocative material is blasted out, it's like being under cannon fire. The power of Pitchshifter's monstrous sound is tripled by the visual assault of their back-projected films, Depicting at various junctures a man bleeding himself to death with a razor, the slaughter of a factory farm, and the horror of Nazism. The band themselves seem lost to everything but their pounding noise. Guitarist J.A. Carter shrieking like a Broadmoor escapee. You can't ignore a band this potent. Pitch shifter are absolutely terrifying. We now come to a piece entitled The New Metallica? Question mark. Machinehead are the hottest new metal band of 1994, and the biggest thing to emerge on the San Francisco scene since Metallica. How did Machine Head main man Rob Flynn survive a life of crime and the death of Bay Area thrash to create the metal album of the year? Don K investigates. In 1984, Metallica were the San Francisco Bay Area's new metal gods. Ten years on, it's Machine Head who are busting out of the Bay Area with arguably the heaviest metal album of 1994. The Bay Area is an urban sprawl of three cities, San Francisco, Oakland and Berkeley, and it has long been a hotbed of American rock culture. In the 60s, Frisco's height District was hippie central, producing druggy rock legends like the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane. In the 70s, AOR behemoths like Journey and Sammy Hagar ruled the roost. But in the 80s, the Bay Area spawned a violent new breed, and the revolution was led by Metallica, who'd migrated north when their fast, ultra-aggressive style wasn't welcomed in Glendale, LA. Legend has it that Metallica chose the Bay Area because bassist Cliff Burton, then of trauma, lived there. Settling in Berkeley, Metallica provided the spark plug for a scene that bore such legendary metal acts as Exodus, Possessed, Death Angel, Testament, Heaven, and many more. The Bay Area was ground zero for the speed thrash death movement, the drag metal kicking and screaming into the 80s. Yep, the Bay Area crunch was the hottest buzz in metal. I was like a little kid at that point, sneaking out to shows, says uh, Machine Head guitarist vocalist Rob Flynn. I always had to tell my parents I was going to bed early, then sneak out the window and hitchhike to shows. Back then, there was Exodus, Possessed, Metallica. I just remember the shows being total chaos. There was no security ever, it was just out of control. People would run from the back of the club and launch themselves into the pit. Nobody cared. I came away from shows with a broken nose and broken ribs and whatever, but it was killer. We all knew what to do. If someone did a stage dive, obviously you caught them. If somebody was in the pit and they fell, you picked them up. There wasn't a need for security. Before Machinehead, Finn was the driving force in second generation Bay Area thrashers' violence who cut their teeth at legendary metal dives like Rufy Zim. We all basically lived at a fucking roofies, he recalls laughing. You just went there every weekend, not even knowing who was playing, just to go down there. You just knew there would be some cool band that you wanted to see playing. Attitude adjustment, Deaf angel, whoever. Everybody just hung out, drank, it was killer. There were tons of fights, it was a very violent thing, but that was just a reflection of the neighbourhoods we all came from. I remember when Anthrax came around and played with Exodus, they had their old singer Neil Turbin who preceded Joey Belladonna and he came out wearing a chainmail glove and spandex with all his hair puffed up. This guy was like, how are you heavy people doing? Next thing it was raining gobs all over him, they had the hardest time. But that was 83, these days John Bush fronts Anthrax and there ain't a glove of metal in sight. In the bay area, the old thrash scene is long dead, Exodus and possessed of Split and Machine Head are the new Metallica. Rob Flynn has his own ideas about what went wrong with Bay Area Thrash. Basically, Metallica and Testament out of that whole scene became like the biggest sellers, so every other band started emulating them. They're both good bands that I respect, but it just became stagnant. Nobody wanted to push the boundaries. In the beginning, the whole thing was to push these boundaries. Every band was trying to be more extreme than the last. Then everybody just came out sounding like Metallica, and it got stale. You know, I don't wanna sound too cocky, but, um, or like a brag-up, but machine head has given the Bay Area scene a much needed kick up the ass. We basically fired up a scene that had fizzled away. When we first came out, we never pushed the fact that I'd been in violence. It was never mentioned in the ads, never mentioned anywhere. We knew that would make it harder. We only had about 50 kids at our first show, but we worked very hard at getting our name out there, putting up flyers in the rain, stapling them up until our hands couldn't even close the fucking stable gun anymore. We just worked really hard, and now we're one of the biggest drone bands in the Bay Area, just on the strength of our live show and uh, the demo alone. It's a new thing, but we bring old-school values to our shows. You come to a Machine Head show, and it's like the chaos i first experienced at those Bay Area shows. It feels really good. Bay Area Thrash, thick with intricate rhythms and chugging guitars, was the biggest noise on the underground metal scene for most of the 80s. Tape traders just couldn't get enough of that Frisco crunch. People even wanted your rehearsal tapes. recalls Craig Losiero, guitarist for Cult Thrashers Forbidden, who of course lost drummer Paul Bostaff to Slayer. But it didn't stay a unified scene, Los Cicero shrugs. It just kind of got ugly. There were so many bands, but not that many good ones. Plus, everybody was fighting for something. There was a pay-to-play thing, and everybody was just getting really cutthroat about gigs and business. The scene disintegrated when people got greedy. Everybody wanted to be the only new band to emerge from the Bay Area. I never liked that term. It was always just music to me, and we just happened to be from here. I'm sure the people from Seattle feel the same way about their scene, which is getting totally desecrated right now. Eric Peterson, guitarist for Bay Area Thrash Survivors Testament, agrees with Los Grunge was cool and kind of gave an alternative to Thrash. Now everybody's trying to do grunge. Thrash came on real quick. Then these other things got in its way and it never really finished what it was doing. It just got kind of corny. Now grunge is done and it's getting kind of corny. Now I think the heavy bands that stick around and hang with it are going to be able to finish what they started. And as Testament prepared to blast back with a brutal new album entitled Low, Rob Flint and Machine Head have emerged as the new heroes of Bay Area Metal. Machine Head's 5k debut album Burn My Eyes takes those crunchy fresh roots and twists them into something monstrously heavy and a contemporary power grooves. It is the definitive 90s Bay Area Metal album and one which threatens to outgun even Pantera and Slayer. Says Flint, living in the Bay Area around all that crime and poverty made me commit crimes and I still have a lot of friends who fell into criminal circles and haven't been able to get out of them. I became insular and used to music to deal with shit. Last time, I wasn't in a band that got into a lot of trouble. I'd go out and pick fights, so it isn't cliche to say that this band has certainly saved me from a lot more trouble. It's kept me focused and stopped me from going insane. It's taken me a long time to realise that I can make pretty decent fucking music that I can get a point across. I put years into this record, a whole fucking life, every ounce of my heart and soul. There are many emotions running through this record, Maybe a kid will only connect with a pure rage, but it's positive stuff in there too. Because ultimately, I'm trying to make something positive out of all the negativity. We now come to communication, and this week's Letter of the Week begins. Over the past 20 years, only one rock act has consistently sold millions of records and continue to diversify, grow, and mature gracefully. 1994, maybe about Pantera, Sepultura, and Soundgarden, yet I hope there's still room for a few words about Rush on their 20th birthday. There are other artists of the same stature who've been around longer, but these bands, The Stones, Aerosmith, are all trading on past success. Last year, Rush released their strongest and in the USA highest charting album of their career, The Magnificent Counterparts. How many bands can claim to be that relevant as they enter their third decade? So happy birthday, Rush. Here's to another 20 years, Andrew Field from Lancaster. We all love a spot of Geddy and co. And so to keep you happy until we have further rush news, you win this week's prize, editor. I've never read such a pile of bollocks as the Nikki Six interview in issue 505. The truth of the matter is that Six miscalculated and is paying for it now. This, my girlfriend's left me but I didn't like her anyway attitude is a fucking joke. Stefan Shirazi was right to say they had control over what happened and could have junked the limos and all that shit. Six panicked in an ever-changing rock climate and joined the last compartment of a train already leaving the station. He should have stayed true to himself and his fans. They're all still out there looking for some rock and roll. That's why Bon Jovi are having to suffer the indignation of playing open air stadiums across the world. Mr Six, You are a jackass and you deserve what you're getting. Diamond Dave Newport. In reference to Paul Rees' review of the Jackal album, Kerrang505, well, Mr. Rees, what a sad twat you are. Your review is a fucking disgrace. If you don't like a band, fair enough. But using your position to write such verbal diarrhea really sucks. I saw Jackal's recent marquee show and the boys ripped the shit out of the place. They're tight, professional, and play with real conviction and they have fun which is refreshing these days as for you claiming that the average jackal fan has an iq in single figures how dare you i'm 31 years old i love rock and roll in all its forms and i dig the shit out of jackal and so do thousands of others so confine your bigoted swoggle to yourself andy russian a redneck punk from Whitam. i've just bought pawn shop guitars by Gilby Clark and it's one of the best debuts I've heard in ages. It's got attitude and kicks ass. This guy's got talent. GNR can't afford to dump him. Axel Psychiatrist from Gwent. Gagging for a shagging and please make sure that there are no children listening to this. I'm dripping for a dipping from the totally delicious lead babe from Mother's Day Out, Michael Moore. I reckon a lil pick of the horny one will be enough to keep my river flowing for a while. Desperate Daisy from Northampton. For Satan's sake, when is metal gonna drag itself into the present? Looking through Kerrang these days it's like we're living in a time warp. Motley Crew, face it lads you're finished, stop pretending and fuck off. The Scorpions, oh well, they're gonna tour the UK. They best leave a message for someone to collect their pensions while they're away then. The Cult, new album? Does anybody give a fuck? Even worse is Kiss getting allotted half the magazine a few weeks back. I wouldn't mind if they were even anybody back in their 20s at the pinnacle of their careers, but they weren't, so they should just fuck off. And this whole punk thing is just lame bollocks in the 90s. You want some fucking anarchy? Just watch the news tonight. Use some fucking sense and give the space to bands who deserve it. Rollins, Danzig, Therapy and Biohazard. From the end of silence, witness. As people who regularly play their records backwards looking for hidden messages from Satan, it was a pleasant surprise to see that the photo of skin in issue 505 was printed backwards. We immediately started playing the skin CD backwards, and lo and behold it sounded just like Babe by Take That, born again skin fans from Basildom. My two friends and I are big fans of Stone Temple Pilots and rang up for tickets to see them live on their October tour. Unfortunately, as we're all only 15 years old, we can't go. We can buy their CDs and read about them in metal mags but are deprived of actually seeing them live because of our age. Is there anywhere in my part of the world they'll play live so as, uh, us underage fans can legally turn up? Helen from Chesterfield When are promoters going to realise that not all rock fans are old enough to vote? Editor. Over the past couple of years, I've done a million and one interviews. I could do most of them in my sleep, but one definitely has to be awake to do an interview with Kerrang. It seems that you've assembled the best writers around. We've really dug the stories you've done on Jackal, especially the review from the Marquis show, Ray Zell fucking rules. The last time I spoke with Dave Reynolds, we discussed the possibility of him coming out on the road with us to do a story. Maybe while we're out with Aerosmith, we'll have to make Geffen foot the bill or I'll pee on them. Your magazine kicks ass. Keep it up and keep rocking. Jesse Dupree from Jackal. Short and Curlies, am I dreaming or did I just see Ozzy Osbourne and Lita Ford on Sesame Street singing about picking up rubbish and recycling? Oscar T. Grouch, Newbreed. Spot the difference. The Wild Hearts, 29 times the Pain, and Brian Adams, Summer of 69. Uncanny, eh? Ginger's rampant ego from Liverpool. Ill communication. We now come to this week's eight-page poster pullout with ACDC. Back on the highway to hell. So, this poster pullout is to celebrate the remastered back catalogue of ACDC. And competition corner from this? ACDC, the original Bad Boys of Boogie, have got a ton of classic albums remastered and reissued this month, and you could win the lot in this killer competition. Yes! In conjunction with those hard-rocking people at East West Records, the Big K has given away five complete sets of ACDC's remastered back catalogue. Stand a chance of winning? One of these awesome packages simply answer the following question. ACDC singer Brian Abino Johnson was formerly a member of which UK band? Was it A. Gumby, B. Geordie or C. Galatasaray? If you know the answer, don't call. Please call 0839 401 Calls are charged at 39 pence a minute. Cheap rate and 49 pence a minute all other times. The closing date for this competition is August the 27th. We now come to this week's cover stars, Soundgarden, Tales from the Crypt. One minute he's Robin graves, the next he's a gay sex symbol. Yep, Chris Cornell is up to some weird shit in America's voodoo capital, New Orleans. Morat joins Cornell and Soundgarden as they journey into the super unknown. Even on a Sunday night, the French Quarter of New Orleans has much to offer the curious stranger. Apparently, you have to know the right places to hear the blues and jazz that the town is famous for. Bad music pumps from the open windows of most bars, everything from ineptly played generic blues to karaoke renditions of YMCA. But considering this is a place where you can still purchase ivory keepsakes and alligator handbags, where pickpockets lurk and shine boys hassle you outside shops selling unutterably sexist t-shirts, New Orleans is surprisingly endearing. If nothing else, it has a lust for life. Soundgarden security guy Bill Sickowich accompanies frontman Chris Cornell Guitarist Kim Tao and I through these effervescent streets, past strip bars, bright lights, hustlers, pimps, a whole street full of Harleys, and then inadvertently into the gay section of town. From a balcony full of men with large moustaches, a camp voice rings out above the music. See you tomorrow, boys. Jesus Christ pose. Cornell links arms with Bill, who puts his arm around the singer's shoulder as we continue walking. You come back here, Chris Cornell. I'll hug you anytime, Insists the man on the balcony. All the world and his living lover recognise Soundgarden these days. Onwards past fast food, joints, more bars, a newsagent where Cornell looks for motorcycle magazines and a voodoo shop that has a picture of Alice in Chains in the window. Later, I asked Cornell uh, for his views on the local magic. Well, you know what I think about voodoo, he says mischievously. I came here a few years ago with my buddies and we dug up graves. Al Yorkson from Ministry told me you should never touch somebody else's graves, but it's just bones. Al, it's just body parts and decay. I've got letters from people who've suggested that different things I may do or say may have some sort of metaphysical power over the future. I always toss them out and nothing ever comes out of it. Or the fact that I dug somebody else's false teeth out of a grave in New Orleans. It's all so stupid. It's the same thing as Christianity, Catholicism, Hinduism. Did you say analism? Kim interrupts, grinning. Most religion is usually based on cheap sentiment and fear of the unknown, concludes Chris. So much for karma. Several hours later, Cornell retires to his hotel room, apparently tired of being pestered by drunks, leaving Kim, Bill, Soundgarden, Roadie J, and myself wandering the humid streets getting progressively more drunk. New Orleans is about the only place in the US where you can drink alcohol on the street. The details are hazy, but somehow we pause outside a strip bar and someone suggests we go in. Kim has never been inside such an establishment before and insists he is not interested. There is talk of it being a learning experience, someone else uh, is paying for the beers. Suddenly it's too late and we're inside. A couple of the exotic dancers recognise Kim and we're ushered to the best seats in the house. It's all rather embarrassing and it gets far worse when the DJ makes a big deal out of playing Soundgarden's limo wreck. Kim looks uncomfortable as a naked and somewhat bored girl hangs from the ceiling and goes through the motions. Hey, I wrote this. I should be on stage, he jokes as we sit the song out and then try to leave. Kim has to spend about half an hour signing autographs before we can get out. Later still, we sit on the balcony overlooking the hubbub of Bourbon Street. Sammy Hagar and Kiss songs split the night air. It transpires that the reason Soundgarden weren't on the recent Kiss tribute album is because bassist Ben Shepard hates them. I get the feeling that the music uh, has cranked up to the max for Kim's benefit. It's tough having people being nice to you all day, particularly when they get it so wrong. Joined by drummer Matt Cameron, we round the evening off in a rock club called The Dungeon. We don't stay long. The next night, after an explosive show at New Orleans's Uno Arena, Chris, Kim, and I sit in the dressing room, getting rapidly wasted on Jack Daniels and beer. Benny's skulking around the corridors, looking dangerous and aggressive. He was hit in the face with an ice cube while on stage and promptly trashed all his gear. No one knows where Matt is. Kim and Chris are discussing the hangovers on that schmooze around rock band. People who are interested merely in what you are, not who you are. Says Chris. I've been in situations with my friends where there's been somebody I kind of knew and I liked. Though they thought they were pretty cool, then one of my really good friends would hate them. I'd say, that guy's really cool and they go, no, they treat me like shit and don't even give me the time of day. I take it seriously because I don't have that many friends. I don't choose um, to, so the friends that I have are people I think are really special. There's been situations where that didn't occur to me until something like this um, happened, then I realised they'd just been cool to me. I generally don't trust people, but I'm nice to them because I'm not used to social exchanges, admits Tar. I practice being nice and then notice I'm in a situation where I don't like the person I'm dealing with. I get really snappy and irritable dealing with people who are a source of discomfort. I barely trust my friends, you know, but I do trust them because there's that kind of honour amongst thieves. You know, Chris Chuckles, I have some Polaroids of Kim naked if you want to see them later. But later when Kim is drunk and saying things he shouldn't on tape, Cornell takes the tape out and smashes it. It was an act which could have earned him a smack in the teeth if it hadn't been such a touching move to protect a friend. Soundgarden are not happy rock stars, but they're philosophical about the hassle their celebrity brings. I asked for it, Chris shrugs. I mean, we've wanted to sell records for 10 years. I'm not going to say that somebody's twisted my arm behind my back and said, Make a rock video so people recognise you. We did it on purpose to sell our records. Our songs get played on the radio, which we didn't really uh, try for. We didn't change our songs so people would like them but obviously if they are played more you end up selling records unless the main objective is to not sell records our objective has always been to make records we like and sell tons of them that's the best possible world getting paid a ton of money for doing what you want to do it's weird sometimes awkward and sometimes i hate it chris swigs on the jd but the worst part was four years ago when we put a record out and we were all fucking shit broke and never made a dime We put all our money into one bank account, and then we draw a cheque for $600 a month, which is the least amount of money I'd ever made, and people would still recognise you. So you're dirt poor, and you can't go anywhere without getting fucked with. At least now we make money, so there's a trade-off. You can afford to secure your privacy. Sam Garden decided to hire a security guy after a drunken incident in London's Camden involving Ben Kim, various skinheads, and some black cab drivers. Surely that had nothing to do with the ban. It does just because of the kind of attitude you might carry around says kim frankly you might be a little bit arrogant or cocky without knowing Um, we might just carry ourselves differently or see ourselves differently he isn't really a personal security guy adds cornell he's somebody to organize health security man at the shows he's not the kind of security who will stand between you and somebody else i don't think it's necessary to have somebody like that because it probably causes more problems it's not a desire for us to be separated from our audience tal continues A lot of it has to do with the kind of personalities that chris and i and ben have we get drunk we have tempers and we get ourselves in situations because we're used to people serving us rolling out the red carpet so our security guys there to protect us from ourselves if nothing else sometimes you're thinking this would be bad for chris if he waxed this guy because the guy's going to come back with a sheriff and sue him i mean we're simply victims we're people who provoke situations on occasion says chris If you're somebody who's likely to get recognised and hassled by some drunk idiot, you're going to be on your guard, ready to punch someone, even if you don't appear to be. So even if somebody doesn't know who you are and they say the wrong thing, you're already in this weird sort of mental state, ready to lash out. Maybe it's not that person's fault. Maybe it's a situation where a normal person wouldn't lash out, but you're in a situation most people aren't. And maybe you're not Prince, and you don't have four restless security guards telling everyone not to look at your stupid stretch pants. There's never been a time in my life where I would approach a guy who was famous ponders Cornell. The only thing that makes it unfair is television. It used to be that no one recognised you unless they bought your records and they were a fan. But nowadays, people who don't give a shit know who you are. People who don't buy your records and don't like you um, or your band will hassle you because they saw you on TV. Millions of people watch us and will never buy our fucking records. Probably 10 times as many people see us on TV than buy the records. And they respond to a guy they saw on TV. They think it's really cool to hassle you and then go home and tell their stupid wife or whatever. Well, good for him, but they're not fans. So you get hassled by as many people who aren't fans as people who are. When they're fans, it doesn't seem like a hassle. But when they're not, it's like the whole new thing. It's not fair. And ultimately, you get something like the suicide of Kurt Cobain. I don't think that anybody can safely resolve that that's why Kurt Cobain killed himself Chris shrugs. I mean, I don't really bother theorising on suicides, but I'm sure it was more than that. It was common knowledge that Kurt had a serious fucking health problem and he had it for years. Well, before he was even famous. Whenever people talk about drugs and death, they put Kurt in a category of drug death, which is not the case. The fact that he was taking drugs was also based on the fact that he had serious health problems that nobody um, could seem to help him out with. Drugs were one way of relieving problems. I'm sure there were also problems with the fact that he couldn't go anywhere. He felt self-conscious about being a teen idol, which was something he didn't want to be. Chris sighs and pauses for a moment. And there was also that issue that he was sick and it didn't really uh, necessarily have to do with drugs or the fact that he was famous. He was emotionally sick, says Kim. He was married. He had a kid. He was a millionaire overnight and you've got to cope with these things it might not have been uh, something that he wanted argues chris but at the same time he made videos you know same as me if you didn't want to be in that situation you didn't have to make another video after it all points to something else it wasn't just this guy's a heroin addict and it made him crazy and killed himself or this guy is bothered by teenagers and he hates it so he killed himself that's probably the most romantic view but it's not the most real view you don't know what drives somebody to do that but if i ever committed suicide i would do it in a way that meant no one ever knew that it was suicide because to me the biggest fear of killing myself would be that it would uh, what it would do to my friends and family if things are fucked enough that i want to kill myself the last thing i want to do is go out and really fucking hurt a bunch of other people fuck it chris groans you can go and live in monte carlo where there's nothing but celebrities I don't believe that money can't buy you a certain amount of security or privacy because it can but that's coming from somebody who isn't particularly private i know people who have become pretty successful in terms of being pop stars and are totally socially outgoing they want to be among people and now they can't that's a way worse situation than i'm in because i wasn't really in it if anything i can use it as an excuse now to my friends and my family he confesses it's like feel sorry for me i don't really want to go there because people are going to hassle me poor me because though i wanted to do that i didn't really have an excuse i've always been antisocial and now they can sympathize with me whereas before i was just a jerk as the jack daniels bottle is drained chris connell muses over his lonesome childhood i wasn't particularly an outcast muses chris i was sort of A fuck up? A girly?" Kim suggests helpfully. No, a mascot, laughs Cornell. I was a teeny tiny baby-faced guy who looked like I was about 11 and he could chain smoke, cigarettes and would do drugs. People thought I was cute because I was this tiny guy who would out-drink everyone. So I was a mascot, but it wasn't as if people necessarily cared about me or were true friends. And there's people who I haven't talked to in years who are now sending mail to our management company saying, remember me, let's go hang out. That kind of hurts. Why do you give a shit now? Chris is equally bemused by the fans who would carry him to the toilet if he so desired. That's true hoots Chris, I think all these fans should carry me around so I can piss wherever I want and never worry about where or (laughs) or when I piss. It just doesn't make sense he smiles, I never wrote fan letters as a kid or denied anyone. Which makes it difficult when people ask who your heroes are and I never had one. It makes me think either there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with people who have heroes I'm not sure which. The people that I've been most in awe of in my entire life, if they'd have asked me to carry them to the toilet, I would have said to them, fuck you. Just to chuck in my own tuppence worth about that interview with Chris Cornell and Soundgarden. Definitely not an easy thing to read with Chris Cornell talking about um, suicide and what would happen if he did kill himself. Because uh, we all know know how things ended up and how desperate he must have been um, when... He talks about the mindset of knowing what it would do to his family, and he still obviously went ahead and did that. Um, Really, yeah, really, really a tough read that was. Um, Let's move on to records. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record. It's so heavy, you couldn't get off the turntable. Hallowed be their name it's iron maiden the first album reviewed this week is made in england by iron maiden reviewed by paul reed's this gets three k's originally released on vhs in 1989 this revised video cd double pack captures the irons in all their foot on the monitor glory at birmingham's nec on the mm-hmm, seventh tour of a seventh tour Back then, of course, Bruce Dickinson and his ludicrously tight trousers were happily fronting the band. Adrian Smith and his multicoloured wardrobe were partnering Dave Murray and his smile on guitar, and Maiden was still unquestionably the biggest of British metal monsters. Five years on, the visual half of this package remains a thumpingly entertaining exercise in the art of good old-fashioned heavy metal. It's the sort of thing that has become alternative music by default. There are explosions, polystyrene icebergs and painful facial contortions galore. Dickinson's teeth grating screams, meanwhile, fit snugly into such fist in the air anthems as The Number of the Beast, Killers, and Wasted Years, and almost trip over themselves in the garbled lyrical rush of Hallowed Be Thy Name, Die With Your Boots On, and Heaven Can Wait. In fact, Amongst the lightingly edited footage, it's revealing to watch with the benefit of hindsight the contrast between the vocalist's gentle parody of a performance and the utter eye-popping commitment of bassist Steve Harris. Minus the visuals, the accompanying 30-track CD is obviously handicapped. Here, your attention is either uncomfortably drawn to Dickinson's more eccentric flirtations with the notion of tune, or led up the garden path by Maiden's most obvious galloping musical interludes. Still, give them a gargantuan stage show and a rabid audience and Iron Maiden will put on a spectacle with the best of them blaze bailey will have a field day this next review is for woodstock by Jimi hendrix reviewed by steve Beebe. this gets 4ks by the time i was born Jimi hendrix had been dead for almost a year the fact that his music remains both viable and relevant today is the ultimate monument to the man's talent hendrix epitomized rebellion against toothless authority even now there are few artists who can perform with such a sense of release such torrential power such feral heaviness on woodstock currently released to coincide with Woodstock 2, you get to hear every wail, every scream and every twisting sound wave of Hendrix's legendary performance. The solo Mission is sadly an unforgivable one, Hey Joe was the last track to be aired at Woodstock, Hendrix returning to the stage for a rare encore, inexplicably this classic moment is not featured. The rest however will keep Hendrix's buffs sated, from Fire to Villanova Junction every last note is preserved, frequently the band degenerated into jamming allowing Hendrix's searing guitar theatrics to fly free. His annihilation of America's national anthem gave vent to the anti-establishment fury of his generation. The moment when this feedback drinks hell turned howling into purple haze is sealed forever in legend. This LP comes with a 27-page booklet and superb sleeve notes by Michael Fairchild, a must for Hendrix addicts. Next reviewed is Churn by Shyad. Reviewed by Mike Peake, this gets 4Ks. When you've got Metallica and Faith No More drooling over your every golden riff, you know you're doing something right. Add to this the fact that New Zealanders Shyad have been produced by Killing Joke's Jazz Coleman, who leaves his mark all over the shop, and Churn is an impressive and imposing debut. It's industrial without the bleeps. Cold, hard, aggressive, like a minefield. Shyad's explosive bursts are unexpected and sudden. One second lolling along on the loosest electro beat, the next they're blasting through with the best resinous Stun riffs this side of March of the Pigs. Churn never grates. Um, depth and diversity counteracting what could so easily have been monotonous brooding violent menacing and memorable it's got songs not bad for a bunch of 20 year olds next review is airheads original soundtrack by various reviewed by steve bb again this gets 2ks Airheads is the latest comic movie to feature a soundtrack of pumping team metal. It's largely an excuse to squeeze the last juice from grunge before it really is too late. Bands like Candlebox are to Nirvana what Rebel Rebel were to poison. This compilation is the scene's messy afterbirth. The Beavis and Barhead generation await. Even the Lone Rangers, this comedy band whose fluctuating career is the subject of the film, provide a better song than most with the punky degenerated. Doesn't say much for the rest even anthrax who have an alarming habit of turning up on these soundtracks can't alleviate the boredom with a very ordinary track called london more promising by far are new york's degeneration who at least give the thing a bit of color the album's main selling point assuming the film itself isn't a runaway success is motorheads born to raise hell on which lemmy is assisted by ice tea and ugly kid joe's whitfield crane this song is a rowdy predictable anthem ideal as the film's single also worth the price of admission are white zombie with the devilish feed the gods jarring uh, goth tinge riffs and Rob Zombie's putrefied vocals making it the highlight of the album. Beavers and Butthead got something right after all. Uh, white Zombie are cool. Chance now and number one in the singles chart this week is "I Didn't Mean It" by Status Quo. Number one still in the indie metal chart is stacked up by Sensor, and the number one album is Swagger by Gun. The readers' chart this week is a very metal top ten, courtesy of Greg Moffat from Limavady in Northern Ireland. Uh, Greg's chart is number one, Forged in Fire Anvil, two White Stallions, St. Vitus, three Born to be Wild, Raven and Udo, Dirk Schneider, four The Wind of Mayhem, Baffery. five Lost World, Count Raven, six Speed Merchant's Razor, seven After All the Dead, Black Sabbath, eight Hounds of Hell, Venom, nine Panzer Division, Destroyed by Budgie, and ten Blackstone, Wielder by Candlemass. The Star Trek this week, Nick Holmes, Growler for Halifax, Doomsday's Paradise, Lost, Let's loose with the top 5 sounds he's cranking the decibels up to. 1. Facelift Addison Chains. 2. Teenager of the Year Frank Black. 3. Sky Valley kaius 4. Renegade Fin Lizzy and 5 Hemispheres by Rush. Next week in Kerrang, if you haven't had enough of Metallica already, Metallica 16-page US Tour Blowout featuring exclusive all-new full colour picks from the hottest metal tour of '94. Also, Megadeth, new album details straight from Dave Ellison's mouth. Bon Jovi, another killer Big karank album exclusive. Therapy, metal madman Andy Cairns reviews the singles. Terrorvision, Stop the Bus, the Bradford Bozos are in town. Plus, Live in Color, Pride and Glory, Demolition 23, and a Bay Area Bonanza, the hottest new bands in San Francisco. And I almost forgot to give you the answers to the cover quiz. Uh, Also, sorry if you can hear that weird whirring noise. It sounds like my Mac is about to blow up. It's just the fan blowing. Anyway, question one. Who bucked at the moon in 1984? Answer, Ozzy Osbourne 2. Which legendary heavy rockers went space trucking in 1972? Answer, Deep Purple 3. Which trio came out of the silent planet in 1988? The answer is Kings X. Four, which hot new US combo released a 1993 album titled Venus Luxure Number 1 Baby? The answer to that is Girls Against Boys. And number five, which kiss man was known as Starchild? The answer to that is Paul Stanley. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to leave us a re- review on Apple Music, that would be wonderful. If you have friends that you think might be interested in this podcast, please do tell them and share it. No worries if you don't want to. Um, As always, I've been your host, Stephen. Thank you so much for listening and I'll be back next week as usual. Have a good week and look after yourselves. Okay, bye for now.